Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the CFD's Weekly Podcast. This week I'm joined by Drew Niv. Drew was the founder of FXCM, and I think I think most people listening will probably be familiar with him. Uh, so Drew, thanks thanks for joining me. Maybe uh, just to get started, you could talk a little bit about what you're up to at the moment. Sure. So, um, you know, me and a few partners of mine, we invested in Trader Tools in 2019. And Trader Tools was, uh, a, they made software mostly for regional banks, for the dealing room, aggregation, uh, order management, ex- you know, execution management systems. We basically took it to make it more of market-making technology. So we took essentially a, a high-frequency trading you know, apparatus and we commercialized it as a software piece. So instead of you know, offering trading, we offer essentially brokers and regional banks, and most of our customers are regional banks, but we started selling to brokers the ability to essentially have the same market-making toolkit that a high-frequency trading fund uh, does. Today, most brokers, for example, either A book or B book everything. So they bucket most of the trades or they pass through what they don't bucket. But the reality is a lot of the trades can be done in a hybrid market making way, right? That is not A or B and what is traditionally what market making used to actually be, right? So this is, um, you know, a technology that allows you to do traditional market making and, you know, we, we've had, we, we have some regional banks that have used it in Europe and see some pretty big success with it. Nice. Well, I guess we'll probably come back to that at some point. I think we're going to, well, hopefully we can discuss quite a few things uh, today. So just to, just to get started, I mean, I, I mean, I personally, I'm familiar with this backstory, if you want to call it that, of some of the brokers in the UK, like the, the bigger names. But can you talk a bit about like what it was like to set up FXCM, the sort of early days in the business? Um, I would imagine also it's very different 20 odd years ago to today of how things work. So can you just talk about like how, how you ended up, how you ended up setting up the company, the early days, things like that? Sure. So um, I started in the industry in 1997. Um, I did university i went to military service and i started in 97 i started working um and i worked at this broker just no longer there called mg financial systems and they were probably one of the first u.s on the i think they were the only one of only uh two maybe u.s uh, online brokers in fx um and back then if you can believe it the systems were html you know, I and mean, people laugh, you know, like the rates change like once every few seconds. Like it was severely archaic, right? Um, the It was one of those things. So we saw it as um, there were six of us, you know, we, you know, I saw how it works, you know, somewhere else. And I said, you know what, there, there has to be a better way to do this because it's not a good substitute for the phone. And FX was mostly obviously traded by phone in those days. And because this is slower than the phone, right? And it's not really doing much of, you know, what, what it's supposed to be doing. And at the time, the template was actually pretty easy because online stock trading in the U.S. had taken off already in the 90s, right? So you, you've had 
that template. I said, why can't this be done in FX? Obviously, when you talk to FX professionals, they said, oh, no, this is so different. This will never go online. There's too much money. It's all this stuff. And the rates are inaccurate. And they were right. The feeds were inaccurate. There were loads of problems, right? Um, But what we essentially... You know, we started the company with very little. Nobody wanted because it was, was right at the advent of the euro. And there was this myth out there that, you know, this was going to be this huge success. And therefore, there's everyone's going to follow this template. And that world will end up with three currencies, you know, Asia, you, you know, North America or Asia, Americas and, you know, in Europe and, uh, you know, everything else. There's no need for currency trading. Banks were laying off you know, thousands of people because so many currencies just went away. Um, so there was lots of talent in FX, no place to go. Everybody was switching to equities, right? Because this was like the late 90s. It was like the big stock boom. Um, so no investors, like nobody believed this thing was the stupidest idea ever, you know? Um, but basically we got lucky, right? So we started it in 1999. And, you know, it was slow going in the beginning. And, and our pioneer, if you can believe it today, people can't believe the story that our thing that we did first was we did not manually change the trading rates. So they're actually fed from Reuters or Bloomberg, something through a spreadsheet into the, you know, into the screen, right, automatically without us keying it in. And more importantly we allowed automatic execution because most people wanted to confirm every trade because the rates were so inaccurate. And we were like, no, we're going to take majority of trades anyway. And if someone really, really picks us off, then we'll put him on manual intervention. But most people would have let automatically. So, you know, the average industry probably was executing five to 10 seconds. People, you know, can't imagine today. <laughs> like, we went to, like, instantaneous execution, which was, like, one second that it took the machine to do this. And that was, like, a huge revolution. And we took... Our other uh, thing was, back then, the smallest size was 100,000. We took it to 10, right? You know, it was, like, notional sizes. And so, essentially, really sort of put the user experience where it, where, it, where it should be, okay? And really, as we built it up, this was, if you looked at stock trading or futures trading platforms, the uh, the trading screen was different than the charts, different than the news, and we sort of put it all in one, right? So, like, you got a lot of things that were just first. Um, and there was a few other people doing it, but, you know, as you know, IG and CMC, like, there's very, very few, right? Um, and this was obviously, there's very little competition, but there's also very few clients, there's very little awareness, right? So this was kind of starting from scratch. Um, and, and we got lucky, basically, that in, you know, by early 2000, the stock market crashed. And... You know, basically people lost faith in equities within a year, right? People kind of lost faith in equities and the, the firm really started to grow and it grew like really, really fast. Obviously, we went from six people at the peak, we were 1,200, you know, we we're 500 million in revenues, you know, at the peak of FXCM. It was, it was, it became a huge success, but obviously in the beginning it was a very, very small um you know, we funded it with pretty much with credit cards. You know, it was a very small thing. Right? Wow. Um, 
no investors, no nothing. Right? Um, so, I mean, w one question I always have is, I know speaking to say, um, like my dad and one of my uncles who used to uh, work in uh, like an open outcry pit in the 80s, uh, and they would always come, I think loads of people who came from that background then ended up losing their jobs uh, when there was this move into technology. And I guess when you started, it would probably be on the like, border between those two periods of time. That's right. um, so something I'm always curious about is, do you think that anything was lost? Like, and, and do you think the people that were not, say, internet dork type people, <laughs> but, but like phone traders, had skills that were useful, which were then not necessarily carried over? Or do you think that that's just not really a thing? So there was, so to think about what happened was the industry very quickly went from hell no, no online effects to, oh, you know, oh shit, online effects is the only thing we're doing because there's no way to beat it. So once the user experience really became that much better, everybody very quickly kind of switched. Um, and it became, you know, like the industry changed very quickly. The institutional trading started changing very quickly. A few years after retail, um, by 20, 2002, 2003, sort of the first real kind of push online in the institutional business. And what you saw was that a few things happened. So one is... We, for example, you know, would have a line out the door of all, like you're saying, phone traders who lost their jobs and brokers. And there was like enormous changes in capital markets at the time uh, because things, everything was going electronic. A lot of stuff was going electronic. So that was kind of across the board. And we hired a few of those people for like grownups in the room, you know, risk managers to say, okay, so, you know, when the shit hits the fan, Right. Like you guys actually know what to do. Right. And that somewhat worked because, you know, you did have experienced people that, you know, were cool under fire and knew what was going on. Right. A little bit and could explain, you know, to everyone what, what was happening at the same time. It, you, you had to have, you know, tech savvy people in there because the problem was that the old FX guys, it wasn't just that they are on the phone all of how they understood the market to be was very different, right? Every trader was, the, every customer they viewed as a very distinctive, you know, uh, individual and with a profile and they had to customize the price to them and try to get the max out of every trade. And that's not how it works online, right? And online we, you know, we treat batches of customers as the same, large batches, right? And we try to democratize it so everyone sees the same thing. Our pitch essentially, which was unheard of at the time marketing-wise, was because most of our clients were outside the United States, was that you, if you live in Dubai or in China or wherever you are, Indonesia, you're seeing the same rates as someone in New Jersey, right? Which was not available at the time, right? You, you were a Citibank customer, a Citibank Hong Kong customers saw one rate, a Citibank London customer saw another, and it really depended which country you lived in, right? Even for institutions, right? And that was a, a, a big thing, right? So we, your, the old school FX stuff didn't translate very well. I think that's why a lot of people kind of failed 
that transition because it just wasn't just the method of dealing with mentality was very different. You took out not just phone people, but all the people around the phones that were filling out tickets that were doing like there was enormous amount of obviously things that happen. It's basically automation like happens in everything else. Like you're talking about enormous amount of stuff. And the only way to pay for all, all of those people was to charge customers a lot more. Right, so if you think about, you know, spreads came down, you know, in a very significant way from 2000 and 2010. Right, if you compare that to the 90s, you're talking about a 95% compression, maybe 97%. Yeah, you know, so, I mean, it, just to give you an example, your typical retail effects rates in the, in the 90s Okay, for like phone brokers charged on a phone, like 20 pips or something. That was a spread, right? Then the online brokers came in and like, you know, discount five pips or something, right? Imagine trading euro at a five pip spread, you know? And, <laughs> you know, by 2011 or 10, you know, talking about 0.2 of one pip, right? And so it, it became... You know, obviously, the, the spreads compressed a lot, right, for a commercial business, speculative business. Um, and mostly because, again, it went online. You don't have to pay all this overhead, right? So uh, I think the – and that's obviously the story in lots of businesses, right? They're like, this is no different than the automation in a lot of places, you know, that happened. But, yeah, there was eno there's enormous displacement, you know, with that happened. Same, the second wave of it happened when – algorithms really displaced lots of clickers, right? And so, you know, that was kind of a second wave that happened probably the 2010s or so really started a massive displacement of, of, of people in electronic trading also as stuff got automated even more so. And I think that, that you know, again, we'll, the, the wheel keeps going, you know? Yeah. So is there, were there any trends that when you started the company, you sort of saw emerge and you thought that's probably just going to be a fad that's going to disappear, but actually it's lingered until today and were, like vice versa. Were there any things where you thought, ah, oh, that's just going to stick around forever and it's kind of ended up disappearing? Yeah. So that, that I got really good examples of both, right? Talk about error in judgment. So there was the EAs that came around like 2004, 2005. I thought, this is, this is horrible. You know, this is definitely going away. <laughs> Two years tops. Once people remember, once you, enough people see that this miracle system did not provide them with the riches it was promised, this fad <laughs> will end. Obviously, this fad grew, you know, like a thousand fold since that prediction, you know, and it, it you know, it, in a massive way, right? Not just the EAs on MT4, but, you know, everything else. And, and even in other instruments, right? It became this, this huge thing. Uh, so I would say that was something that I definitely thought was on its way out, right? None of it worked. It was just terrible. Um, and, and, and there has been, like, periods where somebody would come up with a system. I remember there was a system in... 2008, I don't remember exactly, but I think 2008 or 9, it was called Fab Turbo. I think it was two guys in like the Czech Republic or something. 
And this thing had like a streak of wins, maybe for like almost two years, right? And most brokers would essentially say, oh, we don't accept anybody trading this, you know, bye-bye. Because this thing was making lots of money. It was trading like some crazy currencies in Asian time zone. Like it was, it was some crazy thing. And it was... Uh, I mean, FXCM was one of the only places because we used to A-book the trades at that time. So we, we would say, oh, yeah, we will take that those trades. I think maybe we opened like 20,000 accounts, some absurd number on just on that alone. Uh, to the point where LPs started complaining, right? There's like sophisticated hedge funds moving the market in there in Asia time zone to the point where we had to go install this Fab Turbo at some banks to explain to them, no, there's some dude selling this thing for $200. There's just <laughs> tens of thousands of people trading it. Therefore, it looks like there's some big hedge fund behind this, but there isn't, right? And that that is the, you know, like that. So that those kind of periodic successes, even though this thing eventually yeah. didn't, you know, eventually flop like other things, you know, those periodic successes kind of fuel this, you know, automated trading because, you know, so it works really well for like six months or four months and then, you know, it goes away. Yeah. Um, so you, you have movements yeah. like that. So I would say that's that's one that definitely uh, thing. The thing that I thought, if you look at the bedrock, and this is kind of goes into current trends, the bedrock of traditional FX trading was really interest rate differentials. And actually, I learned this in Japan. Yeah. So in Japan, you could go to a Citibank machine before there was online trading, right? To an ATM machine. And you had your checking account in yen, right? Because you're Japanese, right? And then you, you had savings accounts in dollars and in sterling and, you know, and, and forgot what else. And because there was a massive interest rate differential, so you could earn interest on your dollar thing. And this is pre-financial crisis, the dollar was paying like 6% interest, you know, yeah. and, you know, you could do, go from 0%, you know, Japanese yen to 6% thing. And you were in an unleveraged dollar yen trade at Citibank. And all the Japanese, you know, online brokers did, and we were one of the first ones to open an online uh, Japanese broker. And we did that in 2000, right? And it was to really take the ATM trade, put leverage on it, right? And say, no, but this is like an, and you, sorry, you paid a hundred points to Citibank for this, for the privilege of doing this trade, right? And that was considered cheap, you know, because the airport's like a thousand. So like a hundred points, cheap. so we said, okay, you know, do this at like three pips or something. And, you know, whatever it was, and that kind of launched an industry there. And I think that the, um, if you looked at that, that was a big trade across the world. And that's, I think, if you look at what's coming back in FX over the next few years, right? So carry trades. Carry trades, right? So as kind of dollars and kind of, you know, euros is going to climb to that mid-single digits, you're still going to have stuff at zero. You're going to see emerging market currencies go way into double digits, right? 18%, 20-something percent. So you're going to have a lot of differentials now. And if you look at the carry trade customer, it was a different customer. 
He was not, you know, 50 to 1, 100 to 1 plus leverage. He was not going nuts. He was used anywhere between 5 to 7, maybe 10 times leverage. He was trading for the interest rate differential. It was like buying a bond, right? So the average customer, right, was much bigger. The volume was less, but positions were huge. Um, and losses, like if you looked at success ratios, were way higher, especially jurisdictions that limited leverage. Success ratios were very, very, so you cannot be booked this stuff. And this is what brokers who kind of came up after the financial crisis and kind of live on the B booking are going to have to see because customers are not going to just go to spreads. They're going to say, who's paying the biggest overnight rollovers, right? So that's how a Japanese customer chooses, you know, his brokerage firm, right? It's a big thing, right? And then, you know, I'm going to go leave this trade on and do, okay, I'm going to do dollar, let's say dollar yen is going to be next year, a five and a half percent interest rate differential, right? So do that at six times, you know, great. That's 30% so interest a year and let it go. You know, yeah, it's going to go like this, but how likely am I to get margined out at six times, right? The dollar has to move a lot, right? So it happens, right, when big movements, um, but... There will have to be a rethink. And a lot of what, for example, trade tools were pitching customers, you know, brokers, is that this is wave is coming. This is going to be from just a Japanese phenomenon. This is going to be a phenomenon all across the world, right? Um, because FX was the cheapest form of fixed income trading there was. If you think about what it costs you to do bond trades, they're much more expensive and more opaque. So this was a real thing and a very sustainable part of the business. Um, and I thought, oh, this is great. This is an, It's like being in a fixed income business without having to do these stupid bonds, which were expensive and opaque and dark, still on the phone. Even today, it's hard to do online um, and very expensive. And I think that, and then in 08, it just died. Who would have thought, you know, interest are going to go to zero. The entire business got wiped out, you know, and... It became, you know, before 08, 35% of revenue at FXCM was interest rate related. And in 08, it became 2%, <laughs> you know, and it was compensated for the next few years by volatility that went through the roof, right? But, you know, you couldn't replace once volatility died down in 2012, 13 Right, you could not replace that, you know, super profitable source of income, and very stable because the customer churn was less. It was a totally different world, right? Um, and so the FX business really changed after the financial crisis, right? And I think you know if interest rates continue, not only go up a little more from here, but stay up, stay at those levels for three or four years, you're going to see the business change back to what essentially what it what it was before. And you're still going to have plenty of people do short-term speculation, but you're going to have this carry trade component, which is actually a much more, um, you know, has wider mass appeal because everyone understands, you know, interest rate differentials. It's not something that, you know, is, is, is something, oh, I got, I really understand the facts, you know, and why did a dollar move today? You know, like, 
it doesn't matter if you're trading at lower leverage and you're trading for for rates. Yeah. yeah. So, do you, but do you think that brokers um, today are set up to be able to profit from that trend? Because I mean, if I think of um, you know even myself, right? I mean, I was still in i think in the u.s it'll probably be middle school <laughs> uh or high school or something when the, when the, when the great financial crisis happened so for me it's a new world but even for some people like fund managers and stuff who've been in the industry for 15 20 years it's almost like a new world for them as well yeah. so it's and it, it seems like it would require almost like a total you know, mind shift in, in your mindset and way of doing business. Absolutely. And it, it's, a, it's going to be a big, I mean, it took us a while to recalibrate our head to the new world and the brokers that just started in our new world seemingly were always faster and more agile once because they were smaller, but also because they were born into this zero rates world, right? As companies and we were not. Um, and, and, but I think that mentality some more ready than others. Obviously, Japanese business is very much ready for this because it was built on it and it, it still acts like it. But uh, outside of Japan, most are not really ready for it. I think this is something that most brokers will respond to client demand. But I think if you want people want to get ahead of it, you really have to think, okay, what am I going to do? Do I have enough room for all this new NOP limits of counterparties, right? If I don't hedge today, do I have enough room to hedge all these huge positions that I'm going to be carrying, right? Do I have, uh, do I offer, offer competitive roles, right, to clients to attract that business? To, uh, how am I going to make money given that my model was before, you know, to tr bucket all these the trades? You cannot bucket these trades, right? Yeah. Because you're talking about positions that stay open for weeks and months, right, not hours or minutes. And you're talking about Massive swings, right? Thing, and again, a much, much lower use leverage, right? Um, by a, especially people who are not doing, let's say, dollar yen, but doing uh, yen versus South African rand, right? Which could be, you know, at one point was like a twenty percent interest rate differential, right? So you can do that at two times leverage, and you have a forty percent yield bond. Right, it's moving around, you know, like a crazy person. It's not exactly the same as buying a U.S. Treasury bond, but it—that's it, a big thing. Now, how are you going to bucket that trade? I mean, that guy's not getting squeezed out of that trade. I mean, maybe once every two years, but not on a normal basis, right? You know, at ten times, yes, he probably will, but not at at two or three. And so, that's something that I think is a, um, you know. A mentality shift that people are going to, okay, now how do I make money, right? And that's kind of what we, you know, the trade tool software is made for because this calls for traditional market making to capture spreads, to, you know, to do something that's different than what's being done today. So I think that's definitely, you know, a thing that's going to be different, you know, in the world. And, you know, it's going to take a while for brokers to catch up to it. But I think it's a big, it's going to be a big deal. Yeah, no, definitely. And maybe to go back to sort of early days at FXCM, were there any things that you felt like you did really well that kind of helped you succeed? Or And, and similarly, were there any things you look back on and go, wow, we really messed up there? Or, I mean, or was it all, you said it like, it, you made it seem like it was all just luck, but I doubt it was all just luck, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, we got lucky for sure, you know, but it was, I would say things we did really well that we stumbled onto by accident, then invented it, you know, that it was really our strategic thinking all along, (laughs) you know, was that most of, once we understood that there wasn't a fluke, that most of our customers are going to come outside the United States and actually from emerging markets where there was a lot less trust in, so if you think about, you know, let me take a step back. Think about the, you're this new entity and a new instrument that no one understands in the United States. And people are like, should I put money with you or Charles Schwab to trade stocks? Like that was like an obvious answer, you know, never us, right? So, but if you are from Indonesia or China and, and this is 20 years ago, you don't trust any of the institutions domestically. And I said, oh, you can put your money in the United States. People are like, of course. Yeah. That was like a legit thing, you know, Compar- comparatively speaking. So especially, you know, early on we got regulated. And so that became, you know, a big thing. And I think, you know, in 2002, I believe we got regulated in, 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 the, in the UK, right? So like once you kind of we got that, uh, you know, those type of things, it made that a lot, a lot better. And so I think that then we basically had this company and, and that's true today for a lot of FX brokers. I think FX brokers, probably the most diverse companies in the world in terms of workforces, right? Just because you're dealing with customers from, you know, I think FXCM dealt with customers from a hundred and I don't know, 130, 40 countries, you know, dozens of languages. So we had lots of people who spoke all that, you know, who had to work together. That was, I think, one of the most amazing things that we did and got right. And I think that's what brokers, in general, I think the industry does this really well. Right? I mean, not everyone, but I think this is generally speaking, I've seen people do this just amazing amazing stuff right um and the so i think that was like a big deal that we did right um the i think we definitely i would say did a lot of work in terms of how to make the trading experience better and to up the standards of it um and i think that that was you know, again, from like the early days of the phone to the thing, if you looked at um, most brokers manually intervened on every, had to confirm manually every trade probably to 2002. And we obviously in 99, we started automated, automated trading. And by 2002, everybody had to do automated trading also. Right. That's because they, people would, they were, couldn't compete. Right. So there's all of these little steps that we took that, and then, you know, people started to uncompete us. So we had to catch up. So it competition really led to standards, right. Um, you know, increasing. And I think we were very aggressive in the beginning, expanded very rapidly and kind of forced those changes in lots of geographies around the world, you know, uh, that, that did not have that, you know, um, and so, you know, very stale places like in Japan, the spreads are extremely wide. The standards are horrible, you know, in lots of places. And 
within a few years of coming there, I mean, spreads, again, compressed a ton, user experience improved. So I think that we did really well. Um, you know, screw ups, there were so many, I, you know, obviously, you know, especially the young industry, you know, we do, we were learning as we go, but, um, very clearly, I think, um, if you look at most of our problems were related to introducing brokers, like if you said we had no, if you, if you, if you took out introducing brokers, I mean, that was 99% of all our complaints and all, you know, all our, it was related to something along those lines, right? Because you're outsourcing communications of, with the client to third party and the part of the customer experience and how they aligned expectations of what, like how they sold the expectation of what this client is about to experience, you know, not how you would do it, right? And it doesn't align always with what the expectation of the client, what, what the experience of the client is. So there is a lot of that. Um, and I think like we see in crypto, in places where their IBs were unregulated, clearly there was a lot of foul play, you know, also in the early days. And that's why over time really phased out that business just because it was just, and there was lots of very good IBs too, but just predominantly this was a very wild beast that was very difficult to tame and that was probably kind of our big early mistakes. Um, and probably source of regulatory friction in the States and other like started with this, uh, with this thing. And I think the others were this really a big mistake was keeping a U.S. business open. You know, it was a small part of the U.S. business of the, of the company. We just happened to be Americans, right? And started in America. Well, most of our business was overseas. And we, for years, fought to legitimize it in the United States and make it a, you know, have it respected. And we just didn't understand. The regulars just don't like it. Don't want it. Don't like it. Uh, we're a unique situation. FX in the United States is a unique situation where it is regulated by its competitors, right? The futures industry regulator, their association, is the regulator for FX, you know, and... The one thing they all have in common is they want to see FX dead. And guess what? FX is almost dead in the United States as a result, you know, between the exchanges and the futures industry. Like, there's no way to make it work. So anybody has ever asked me, oh, you know, there's so little competition in the United States. I'm like, there's a reason, you know, it's not a good place to be. And we should not have stayed there, you know, for that reason. Um, and it was just stubbornness, right, that, you know, this, this is the richest country in the world as you know there has to be a big market here and there is it's just the government doesn't want you there right because there's commercial interest not a government issue it is there are commercial interests pressing the making these rules against you and there's no way to fight them because they have more they have 50 times the credibility the crypto industry is about to learn all of this <laughs> the hard way. you know uh there are all of these, you know, traditional financial players are about to stomp on it, you know, using the the boots of the government at some point very soon. So, um, you know, this is a lesson, you know, I have tread marks, you know, you know, the thing I can, if people want to play by play how it works, it's coming, you know. Um, and, and that, unfortunately, is, you know, is definitely a big mistake, right? Like this is 
Sometimes you have to know, you know, you know, the problem with making it very big, very quickly, is you believe too much of your own bullshit, right? <laughs> and you think, oh, well, I, I, you can do, I can convince anybody anything. I mean, this is statistically good for them. The evidence shows it's, 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 it's better than what they're doing now, right? And uh, that that should be good enough, right? But I just not. Sometimes you gotta know when to fold, you know, and take a loss, and you know, and just you know everything we criticize the customers for, you know, not knowing when to take a loss, not you know doing proper risk management, you know, on a position. We do that in business and decision making process too, and we just. Sometimes you have to give up the fight and say, it is not worth the resources we're pouring into it yeah. to go essentially put those resources in a, different, uh, in a different country. And I think that some countries are just not worth their effort. Um, and I think that's, that's definitely a big, you know, a big thing. Um, okay. You know, and I think that's, that's a real, you know, real issue. And you don't have this. And again, I, I think, you know, if you look at what's in the news now with FTX and <laughs> all of this, you know, insanity is that we had those stories in FX where there was all these boiler rooms, even pre-online in the 90s, that were owned by a Chinese mafia or something that were stealing money. There were like all sorts of stuff. And the regulators took those instances, right, and went in front of Congress and said, well, this is FX trade. Mm -hmm. And got this super wide latitude, right, to go in, you know, all guns blazing, you know, no restrictions, you know, to shut it down. And that, you know, the FTX thing very much going to be used, you know, for this kind of thing. And, and obviously nothing in FX came even remotely close you know, to what, I mean, this, this thing was just, yep. you know, and you know, like the hundred companies, it's about to bankrupt, you know, as a, as a consequence, you know, cascading, yeah. topple dominoes wise, right? I mean, that this is going to be insane, right? So I mean, the, the, the regulatory pressure is going to, yeah. So I mean, just that on that point, right? I think that you, you touched on, <laughs> touched on uh, FTX, which I think is, as like a great example, well, prime example of this. But uh, I think, firstly, loads of crypto. I I personally think crypto is kind of like bullshit, basically, and going to go to zero. But I know people disagree. But I think in the in the this sector and in just a wider economy, going to go through a really tough time. Um, it's probably we're probably in a recession in the UK. And I, from my point of view, it seems like if you're the, you know, one of the few people left standing because you have loads of cash in the bank. Uh, it's probably actually going to be quite a good time for you. And I, you guys kind of rode out, I mean, like the dot-com bursting, great financial crisis, uh, all that sort of stuff. And I think you you were able, you were sort of seeing on both sides in, and in terms of being acquired and also making acquisitions and things like that. So, I mean, do you have any tips or thoughts on, on what people could do in this period regardless of which side they're on of, of the transaction? Sure. I, I think that, so FX functions differently. It's kind of like, 
everyone else's tears is your smile, right? And like, I remember, you know, like in 2008, 2000, I mean, two th late 2007 to 2011, pretty much was like the golden period for foreign exchange brokers, right? Because volatility was ridiculous. Profit margins were insane. Um, so it was easy to do well when everything was going pear-shaped because actually, you know, all this money moved out of these bull market industries like stocks, real estate, right? There were there are bull market things and, you know, moved to things that effects uh, that are not, right? And, you know, the toughest periods in FX are actually 2012 to 2019, right? Because you're talking about very low volatility, zero interest rates. There's essentially no fundamental reason to trade FX, right? From a macro perspective. That's why so many macro funds in institutional business left the business in those years, right? And those are the things that all of those things are coming back, right? And because interest rates will bring that back. So I, I think the next four years, I think will be a golden period for FX because you have high rates and you're going to have um, uh, higher volatility, right? With all the craziness, right, that's going on in the world and, you know, we're going to get more craziness. And just if you think about the world's not ready to change over, like you said, you were a kid, right? When the world was what had high interest rates. That is true for a lot of people and therefore... And a lot of people in position of power, right? Companies, right? Politicians. And so most people, I don't think, remember how society functioned when the cost of funds was much higher. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Right? So, and so uh, a lot of businesses will change. A lot of things are not going to be worthwhile anymore when the cost of funding is so high, right? And, you know, you have to change strategies. You have to do lots of things. And there's going to be a lot of turmoil as lots of stuff breaks, right? So if you think about like the crypto lending business, it's why was it such a hot business? It was a hot business because, you know, regular bank deposits paid so little. You know, uh, you know, when I, I remember when I was a teenager and, my, you know, my, um, I got money for like my 13th birthday, you know, for my, my bar mitzvah, I got... I put that money in the bank. It was like a you know a certificate of deposit in the in the U.S. You know we call it. You lock it up for a year. I got nine percent interest rate. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, it was like the eighties or something. So it was just uh, you know that that those days maybe we won't come back that high, but there's gonna be there, no one would contemplate stocks, right? You know what I mean? Like it was unless you really knew something about it and you really thought you were going to make 50%, you wouldn't do it for 10 because you get interest risk-free was so easy, right? And so there's enormous amount of things that will change in the world. I think when rates are higher and, you know, that will be a very violent, I think, transition period will cause a lot of volatility. And, you know, so again, that's all good for foreign exchange. Uh, so generally speaking, the mistake that I made was we went public at the end of this period, right? So we went public at the end of 2010, right? 2011, you know, on this track record where we just had these amazing years and we were making so much money thinking, oh, we're about to, we're going to 
Because we know when things are bad, it looks like it's going to be bad for another 10, right? Like when the economy was in despair, right? So it looks like it's never going to end, right? Like times are good. Like they also seem like they will never end, right? So like it, it's that everything ends, right? And the golden period will end too, right? So you're going to have this golden period for some undetermined period of time. And so, you know, you have to, and you can never time the beginning and the end of it, right? Nobody knows that. And so you have to take your wins and this is what we didn't do and, you know, could have sold FXCM those years for a lot of money, you know, and chose not to do it, you know, and chose to do that. And, and you know, we kept, how do you compensate for an industry that's shrinking, right? 2012 to 2019, right? Is you buy other brokers. And again, you're, doubling down on a losing trade, right? When things, you know, are bad. And so it's, it's really, no, people need to take when times are good, this is a time to sell, not when times are bad, <laughs> you know? And, you know, and time, you know, and again, from a buying perspective, if you're buying, this is the time to buy. If you're buying brokers, this is the time to buy brokers and overpay for brokers because those brokers are going to make more. You know, just because, again, the environment's perfect. And, you know, you don't have to be the world's smartest guy, right, or gal to make lots of money, you know, when the wind is, you know, and you're back 100 miles an hour. And no matter how smart you are, it's very tough to make money when the wind's blowing in your face 100 miles an hour, right? And that's what we found out. I mean, I remember, you know, looking back, you know, 14 or, you know, before S&B, and saying, you know, if I compare every two years at FXCM's history, our system is 10 times more improved. Our customer service is better. Like all of those changes we made, we're more efficient. We spend money more efficiently. We're that much better at everything, every metric you could find. And we're still paddling backwards, right? Or barely paddling forwards, right? Just to keep the ship from going backwards. Like we're doing a monumental amount of effort because the wind's no longer at your back. Right. And so really timing the, and you don't can't forecast the wind, but when it's there, you need to say, OK, it's not going to be there forever. Right. So I think when it's when the wind is bad, people need to cut expenses and hunker down. And when the wind is, you know, in your favor, which is right now, that's when you need to pour money into things. Right. And when you think it's time to get out, this is when you sell. Right. But if you're in a buying market, this is the time to buy. Even though you're going to overpay because everyone's optimistic, you know, about the future. But this is the time, you know, I think to buy it. So uh, that's kind of my, you know, 20-something years in this business, you know, is like that, you, that the cycles will come and go for sure, right? Um, and they're getting longer, so it's harder to believe it, right? Like you could just, nobody believed the zero interest rate environment would ever end, right? But it did, and it's going to end violently. I say not Putin violently, but like, you know, economically violently, you know, and, you know, that that's a, you know, that's going to be a, a big thing, right? Um, and you can you can see it. It's all this unraveling of, of not just the FDS technology stocks, right? You can see the excesses, property market excesses, right? There's, this is going to happen. Um, and this is just the start of it, right? So I think that it's, it's going to be a, you know, a great time to be in the FX business. Okay, interesting. Um, I mean, yeah. to go back to F, yeah. F, back to FTX. I mean, 
you, I guess, were in a probably at one point in a somewhat similar position, somewhat similar position, nowhere near as insane, I think. Uh, but can you, what is that like? I mean, if, if you wake up in a position where everything is kind of crashing and things like that, I mean, and you've spent, I mean, at that point, you must spend like 15, 16 years building this business. Like, how, how do you, what, what is like your first response? You just, is it just like unbelievably stressful? Is it, what is it like? Yeah, I mean, try not to cry, you know, like so the, uh, the, um, I think the, the thing that, you know, when S&B hit us, um, you know, we lost like $300 million or something, you know, in a day, right? In, min- in minutes, right? And uh, so we went from having like $350 million of capital to like 50 right? And you can't operate whatever, I think it was six or seven, you know, glo- uh, regulated subsidiaries. We'd like, you know, we needed like 250 minimum, right, to do that. So it was something crazy like that. So there's massive shortage. Um, and obviously debt comes, you know, everybody calls the debt on you. So it's a million different things, right? So there was mistakes made there for sure, um, multiple things. But, you know, when that happens, you sort of have to say, okay, look, this happened. So, you know, it's 801, whatever happened before 8, you know, it's that, that happened already. So now what do you do at 802, you know? And, you know, at the time we made the decision to say, okay, we could close down, I don't know, 90% of the company and leave only the unregulated or slightly regulated stuff and operate ourselves. And that would mean, you know, over a thousand people would lose their jobs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you give back the money to the customers that uh, are in the regulated jurisdictions and you keep the operating business going for, for the unregulated stuff. Or you bail it out, right? And so because it was a public company and our account, unlike FTX, our accounting was there and the customer money was there and, you know, it was a real brokerage firm with real controls. It, 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 we needed a cash infusion and everybody knew, okay, once it's there, it was fine. And, you know, we gave away essentially the equity portion of FFCM. So we essentially, you know, me and the other co-founders, you know, we gave away essentially the entire, our entire equity position, right? But that saved the company, right? So nobody really... As far as customers were concerned, if you didn't lose money during S&B because of the price movement, you basically didn't feel it, right? Um, like trading never stopped, right? It was like a real, I mean, we froze withdrawals for 24 hours, maybe 36 hours, something like that. And it was, everything was great. And you just, you know, we made the decision. We've already had a good run. We made an enormous amount of money from owning this thing even before it went public. And we sold a lot when it went public, right? So we were already pretty wealthy. So, you know, we were not going to go and get that last ounce of greed to try to maximize what could have left over and throw everybody that made us that money, our employees, our customers, right, to the wolves. So 
we decided no, we're not going to do that, right? So we just it was better to, to let it go, and you know, and again, that's very hard to do. We are this is like it was, you know, I started this when I was like twenty six. You know, it was it was a, it was a very it was like my baby. You know, my wife always says that's my first wife. <laughs> you know, she's the second, right? FXCM was the first wife, and I always loved her more. You know. And, <laughs> You know that, but and there was—it's not true if she's listening. You know, <laughs> but like, it is to a degree, right? It's a very much, you know, um, uh, you know that that issue, you know. And so, you know, and this is what you know people aren't doing. And if you look at this catastrophe with FTX, it's like there's there's no way to save any of the stakeholders there at all. I mean, because it's just obviously it wasn't a freak loss of a, you know, once in a 40 year movement, right? It was just, you know, whatever that thing is, right? Like it was just, whatever it is, right? So, but there is a lot of, um, that I think, and we saw, right, at FXCM, tons of brokers unravel, some well, some better than others, right? Um, but Nothing like what's going on in crypto. I've never seen in FX. And we were front row seats before S&B to all of the disasters of people kind of whose brokerage firms unravel and try to sell it to us. Nothing comes, no one, the worst broker I've ever seen doesn't come close to some of the best quote unquote run, you know, crypto companies that are out there. They just, I mean, don't really don't know what KYC is and don't understand financial controls, you don't know, custody or anything. I mean, it's a shocking unprofessionalism, you know. Yeah. If there was ever a reason not to let programmers run the world, this would be it. Yeah. You know, this is what happens, you know. And the and it's fine if they do stuff like social media, right, but housing other people's money requires a lot more responsibility and a really respect for it, right. And, and I think, you know, when you say – do I want to lose $200 million of personal net worth overnight? I didn't, right? But you have to respect the fact that almost, I forgot what exact number, $2 billion of customer money was warehoused at FXCM. And, you know, it was enormous amount of money. And there was all of this, you know, employees and suppliers and the, the, the livelihood of lots of people depended on it. And it was was a big thing and you know is that it was not easy losing you know all that and giving it essentially giving it away right uh but it was it was a better decision than not doing that right and again made easier by the fact that over the years you know we made a lot so you did not exactly end up poor and you want to go now do that you know, do that to everyone else. I think that would be the worst thing that we could have done, right? And so I, I think that, um, you know, and we and 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 I think in testament to how sound FXCM was, we did get a handshake from Jeffries in twelve hours to get three hundred million dollars. And I think people, you know, that that is pretty big accomplishment. That's right? pretty amazing, um, yeah. And I think that that's you know, and of course the deal terms reflected the fact that. When you get money in 12 hours, you get the worst deal ever, right? Then it was the worst deal ever, right? Uh, for stockholders. 
But for customers, employees, everyone else, it was just, you know, it stabilized, you know, everything. And I think that was, you know, and, and I'm not trying to sound altruistic. It really is just, this is, you know, in light of all these disasters are about to happen, right, that we haven't even heard of yet. When, you know, things are not so quite well destroyed and you can still save them, people really need to think about what sort of legacy they they leave, you know what I mean, uh, uh, below them and all that money they made, right, all these people that were responsible to make that money. It was just a joke with people, you know, the CEO's job, right? You run a big company, the job of the CEO is to take credit for what everyone else is doing, right? And But it's also to take blame, right? When, when things goes wrong, you're supposed, your head rolls. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do and that society was built for this. Right? And people understand that you make the money when going is good, but you take the fall, you know, when the going is bad. And I certainly was not this calm about it back then. I'm happy. Uh, but, you know, yeah. uh, you so, I mean, anyway, because I was a grown up. Yeah, no, that's it's all really interesting. But, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, on the back of the FTX stuff, do you think the crypto market will just die? Or do you think? I don't actually. And you know, I've been a crypto skeptic. You know, I posted yeah. this on LinkedIn yesterday. I was like, I've been a crypto skeptic for years, right? And people were pitching me crypto for years on end. And they came to see us at FXCM at 13 and 14. And I was like, oh, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, right? <laughs> and I, like, this is done. And then when I left FXCM, I did consulting for some of these companies. And I was like, oh my God, this is horrible. Like you people, of course you're opening more accounts than anyone else because you don't check anything. Like you accept anyone. You know, the Ayatollah can open an account tomorrow, you know, and be just fine, you know, and no one knows. They'll be like, oh, welcome to, you know, wherever, you know, and Binance, know, yeah, it's so. like nobody, nobody cares, right? So it was like the FX brokers could never get into the crypto business because you could never play by those rules, right? Because they had, you know, authorities to worry about. And... These guys just never had the authorities to worry about. So they just played by, you know, made up rules. Right. And I think, you know, you looked at that and I said that really colored my view very badly of it. Um, But the one. So with all that, you know, why is it like in a ten dollars now? Bitcoin should not be like sixteen thousand should be like a ten bucks. Right. And but it's not because. What I saw in FX and why, you know, we, we went through and said, why do we have so many clients in emerging markets? Why is it that people from, you know, Egypt and, you know, you name the emerging market country, right? Know so much about FX, right? Malaysia, places like that. It's because the worse your currency was, right, the more... You know, when some when a person in Egypt or Malaysia or any of these places looked at their banknotes, they said, this banknote was not, uh, didn't look at it like an American or a Brit looks at a banknote, right? Like when you look at sterling, well, right? You look, not, I'm not sure about uh, Brits anymore. Well, <laughs> even, even, even today, right? With all the hoopla going on. A banknote's a banknote, it has its value, and yes, inflation's eroding it like everywhere else, but it, it has its value. And you think of it as a standalone thing, 
right? The average man on the street thinks of it standalone uh, value, right? That with this, you know, one pound, I can buy, you know, bread or whatever I, I can with it, right? Um, the If you look at, you know, in those the emerging market countries, people thought about this piece of paper like it was like Kleenex or toilet paper. Like it was just this thing, right? And its value was not the, the was only, was its value against the US dollar, right? So everybody, everybody knew what the local rate was via the dollar all the time. It was on evening news in all these countries. It was, you know, this is before the internet, right? Like it was on all the newspapers. And I remember in, in Israel before the shekel floated in 1999, the evening news, which even in a government run TV station, they had the official, like what's the official exchange rate you can do at the bank and what the black market rate is also, you know, <laughs> and because, you know, that was relevant information for the average consumer, you know, and the, that is the case in lots of places, right? And obviously some countries like Israel have moved beyond that now, right? And they're wealthier, et cetera, you know, and don't, and the shekel is now like a real currency, but it wasn't 30 years ago. Yeah, and but there's a lot of people in that state today, right? Dozens of countries, and so if you looked at their thing, they still think of life in dollars, right? And what crypto has done, right, is mostly because of government action, right? Is it's starting to replace the dollar as that transaction mechanism for those people to get money out of Egyptian pounds or to transact, right, or out of Argentinian pesos, right? It's because of this issue where 30 years ago, if you lived in Argentina, you could fly to Miami, right? And you can open a U.S. bank account, deposit money in there and be like, okay, my life savings are in the States in dollars, right? That is extraordinarily hard to do today, right? You have the right passport, you have this, you have residency here, you know, opening a bank account, you might as well be applying to, you know, to, to, to Oxford or something. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, you know, we have these five documents, did you pass this test? Like, why would we open an account for you? And in crypto, you don't have that. And so crypto has taken over, especially people in the periphery of the world, Right, as not taken over yet, of course, but it's increasingly being used in these like transactions, right? People taking money out of those kind of countries, even in place like Russia, right? Restrictions, iron curtains falling, you know, people want to, you know, transact real money. Crypto is one of the only way to get that done. So that is actually the only real live use case of it, and that's increasing in use, and the more the globe, more countries slide into that status, the more it will be used. That's a real fundamental use case that will, that will be there. Wouldn't have to be the case if reg banking regulations in the West were, weren't so strict, right? But it is the problem of really banking regulations created, I believe, this use case for crypto. That is expanding. Yeah. So I was going to say, it's the, I think the only two people I've met who seem to have a legit, like a real crypto use case. One was um, 
uh, Iranian guy who lives here in the right. UK, and he would send it to, the only way he could, or the easiest way for him to send money back to his parents was was via like Binance or something like that. And without the UK the, police, the only, you know, emerging into his house, that he's like, you know. <laughs> well, I probably just gave him away, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they're not gonna knock on his door now. But yeah, and the other person was uh, was Turkish, and he was, right. you know, freaking out about understandably under uh, hyperinflation. So I still think that's it's, it's bullshit, but, personally, it, but, but I can't I understand. Countries. Right, and now you're, you're you yeah. have hundreds of millions of people living in this uncertainty. Yeah. Right, and we have made uh, them being able to store dollars ex- exceptionally difficult. You know, it used to be that you could open a Swiss bank account, a U.S. bank account. You could, you know, move money across borders relatively easily. Uh, open when online banking started, you can open an account online. You didn't have to travel to Miami from Venezuela, but now you do, right? And you're still not getting an account. And so it's just crypto is a real thing. So that, I think that obviously the other stuff in crypto, I agree with you. Like if you look at the all this interest, Dogecoin, not just the <laughs> the, the coins, but the you know, earning interest on it, whatever, all the stuff that people are doing in it is terrible. It is, it is not a long-lasting... And it really is kind of like stocks in a sense that it's a bull market phenomenon that as rates rise and uh, excess money is drained out of the system, the entire point of how we control inflation, finish. a lot of these use yeah. cases will just disappear. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. That's what I've, I said. I wrote in the newsletter, I think, a month or so ago, I think that tether is going to break and that's going to mess up, mess stuff up. And then if you are, if you have the choice of, you can get, I don't know, 4% in your chase bank account versus 5% on Dogecoin in Binance Bahamas. Like why? I mean, why would you do that? And and you don't even know. You still choose the four. Yeah. And like, it's going to take a lot to lure people out. And to make it real, and everyone knows all these 20% promises, that's just a Ponzi scheme. So, like, it was just a, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I think there's just, it's going to unravel a lot of this financial portion of the of the crypto market, for sure. And yeah. actually, I think cool. that will, yeah. that will actually um, equal, equalize the playing field. And one of the reasons why FX brokers couldn't get the crypto CFDs to really, uh, you know, take off as an offering was that they're competing with all these completely unrealistic things that all the crypto places could do, right? The no KYC, the, you know, the no funding restrictions, the uh, uh, come earn 20% on your money or 10% of your money. Some, you know, like what broker can say that, you know, without going to jail, right? And so... Now, when you strip all that away, where the spread's cheaper? Where is it a better tra- venue to trade? Where le- your money's going to be safer in a UK registered company or in whatever, some island, you know? And, and that's where no one's watching, right? Clearly, everyone knows the answer to that question. And I think once you equalize the playing field a little bit more away from these crazy promises, uh, 
it'll definitely, I think, the people who want to speculate in it, who can do it in the CFD space, you know, with brokers and not do it, uh, you know, in, in spot market. Although I'm still a believer that, I don't know who, because, you know, people are falling relatively fast and I think we haven't heard even close to the last of how many more people are going to fall. But the last man left standing in spot crypto, you know, there's probably a few of them will make an absolute fortune on the way up. Because, you know, the open spigot of people funding new stuff in that business is over. You know, <laughs> like, imagine yeah. the next guy that writes a big check to a crypto company is going to be fired instantaneously. You know, not seeing, <laughs> you know, the forest from the trees. And I think that that's a big issue, you know, but... Uh, yeah. I, I don't think its use cases are dead. I think it's limited, right, than yeah. what it is today, and it's not going to attract. But I actually think if you think about sort of what FX, when rates come back, FX is going to attract that interest rate crop, right? And so brokers who yeah. want to think ahead are thinking, all those people who wanted that 20%, it would give, you know, all the money in the world for 20%, there, you could get those people, right? Because that's, that's, that customer issue remains, right? And so, yeah. an FX is going to be a cheaper, better, easier way to do that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I remember probably four years ago, I was actually at the, I was actually at the Finance Magnates London event, which is in two days from now. So, uh, but, uh, and I, I was speaking to someone who said, it was when it was when crypto had crashed. It was like one of the you know it was like the twenty eighteen crypto crash. One of one of many, uh, and he this guy made this point. He said, in the end, everyone will comes back to FX. Like over time, in the end, everyone will come back to FX. So maybe uh, to finish off, last question. Um, one of the things I think in the past, say five years, you've seen is this move where everyone goes, we want to be multi asset. We're a multi asset broker. We need all this stuff. Um, my understanding is that loads of the products just aren't very profitable, right? So like single socks, my understanding is that no one really makes that much money off them. I could be, could be completely wrong. Um, it's just not a very good game. To be in. So do you think that ultimately, right? So it's yeah. the issue of you're trying to broaden the audience to say the hot stock of today, you came, you open an account to trade the hot stock of today, you traded it once, and then the rest of the time you're gonna trade the indices and the FX stuff, you know, like everybody else. Yeah. So if you look at the bulk of revenue is still in like top five instruments, right? But if you looked at yeah. who, who, what attracted the client, yeah. single shares, you know, all the esoteric stuff around it. Yeah. You know, we always saw this. So you thing. don't think we're, um, so I guess my question was gonna be, do you think we're, the multi-asset stuff is done and we're going to be in make FX great again phase or uh, or do you think it's going to stay but just FX will be a more popular? So here's, here's that is actually an awesome question because the, <laughs> we in, so in, you know, pre-financial crisis, we were racking our brains, right, FX in because we were only FX and like a few CFDs. And we said, oh, you know, should we do this? And, you know, these crazy British people with their CFD stuff, you know, <laughs> what are we going to do with that? And 
should we get into it? And then people were making lots, obviously the IGs of the world making lots of money doing this. And we were thinking, should we, should we, should we? Then the financial crisis came and it's exactly what you said. This is like mega FX trade again. There was no point. <laughs> Nobody wanted to trade single stock uh, CFDs. Actually in 2008, enormous amount of single share CFD brokers went out of business. Because the stock market collapsed in such a way that you had a, like, 15 or 100 mini S&Bs that happened to all these brokers that held, you know, customers bought some Spanish construction stock or even the stock of Citibank or something like that. And it went from $50 to $3, right? And, you know, you're you're screwed, right? The customers, mar you got margin called at 40, you're sitting on it at three. And yeah. it became, lots of people went out of business, right? So it was really what happened in, in we be, and, and customers didn't want to hear about single shares anymore and anything like that. Everybody wanted to trade only the main stuff, right? And that was awesome, right? And it was like this glorious, you know, again, three, four years. And then volatility died and interest rate died and multi-asset brokerage <laughs> became good again, right? Because the bull market resumed, <laughs> right? And you... People, again, wanted to trade esoteric instruments, right? And so it'll come in waves, but over the long run, the multi-asset broker, that was a big mistake for FXCM not to be, you know, a bigger player in the multi-asset broker space. And, you know, the, because, you know, if you look at a 10-year cycle, you I think you have to be there. If you look at a, you know, the next few years, there's no point. Next few years, single share yeah. CFDs will be a drag on everybody's business. Everybody will rue the day they ever, you know, started offering them. <laughs> you know, people say, why do we have these stupid things on our books? There's still some three guys with a position, so we can't, like, unoffer it. You know, and yeah. it becomes this, this thing. And because, you know, if the stock market goes down another 30 point percent, 20 percent, I mean, you will mm -hmm. see a huge shakeout. Right of participants in that business, yeah. right? Because um, you still there is enormous amount of optimism in the retail business still. When I say retail business, like the funds, the stockbrokers, you know, all that. Like, yeah, your twenty somethings are gone because they they just found out the free money wasn't available. Their parents never told them, you know. But like. The forty somethings are still there, right? And another twenty percent leg down in stocks, they're gone too. You know, and it'll back to just hardcore traders. And that business is very much the core, you know, FX kind of customer. And that's something that, you know, again, that's why FX brokers really do so well during that period of time, because it's that Everyone else is hiding under their bed, right? And only the the people who really, really want to take a risk are trading. And so, but when, you know, you have wider participation in a bull market, you, you have to have be multi-asset, you know, to do it. Um, and yeah. so it, it will be a horrible time, you know, to be multi-asset in the next few years. But over a 10-year period, it's, it, I think it's still this much. Okay, there you go. So we're short term make FX a great, great again, but long term multi asset. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, cool. Drew, th- thanks so much for doing this. This was really Absolutely. good. I, I think it was, uh, it was, uh, yeah, I think anyone listening to this would, would get a lot of it. So hopefully uh, we'll try again at some point. So yeah, thank you for your time.